Hey guys, what's up? It's Lizzie Jane, and we are back with another episode of the podcast. I hope you guys had a lovely, relaxing, chill Thanksgiving. And if your Thanksgiving was the opposite of that, I'm sorry, and I'm glad we're past it. (laughs) Um, I had the pleasure of meeting up and sitting down with Tori Letzler. Uh, She is an incredible individual that has worked in many spaces of the entertainment industry. Tiny Cat is the electronic alias of Tori. Uh, She is a vocalist, producer, DJ, composer who has released and gained support from incredible electronic dance labels such as Bass Rush by Insomniac, Deadbeats, Loli, Universal Music, and Dimmock. She is developing such a cool sound. She has an EP on the way that she is finishing now. We talk about, you know, having unique styles in the electronic space and how it's such a differently paved path than most travel in their journey of building a project. And I've been wanting to speak with Tori for such a long time. In addition to the Tiny Cat Project, she is incredibly credited in the world of scoring and composing for film and TV. She has been working in that industry for over a decade. She recently scored the full Netflix series, In From the Cold, as well as singing on over 50 scores from legendary composers, including Hans Zimmer and many more. She's worked on some of your favorite video games. You've heard her voice in some of your favorite electronic dance music songs to your favorite movies and everything in between. It was such an honor again to speak with her. Listen to the whole conversation. It is worth it. We go in on all different fronts. Again, I hope you guys had a lovely holiday season. I'm glad we are back. I am sitting down with some incredible guests that you are going to hear from this month and into January, which will now officially be the debut of the season two premiere of the Lizzie Jane podcast. We have lots of new things coming. So get ready. Enjoy this month. Take a chill pill. Enjoy time with your friends, your family, time away from work, hopefully. And without further ado, this is Lizzie Jane, and you're tuning into my podcast with special guest, Tiny Cat. Hey guys, so lately I've seen a ton of larger shows I've been playing at that a lot of these festivals and venues are no longer allowing bags that are not clear. Well, guess what? Lunchbox Packs is coming in clutch again. They have just stepped up their anti-theft bags by releasing a fully clear hydration pack and snack pack. This is an absolute game changer for your summer festivals and events. Each bag is made out of TPU material that is incredibly durable, flexible, and made to not alter under extreme sun exposure over time. You also have the option to bring a skin in your bag on the way in, and once you're through that security line, you can zip on your skin for privacy of your belongings and to add some extra personalized fun flair. These hydration packs meet the majority of all festival regulations and guidelines. As always, these packs have all of the awesome anti-theft features as the original hydration and snack packs. Make sure you use code Lizzie Jane for $10 off any hydration pack and code 
Lizzie J for $5 off any snack pack. I will see you at the rave. The show today was brought to you by Vitaplur E-Boost Gum. With no pill to take or powders to mix, Vitaplur E-Boost Gum is a first-of-its-kind energy rave supplement that provides magnesium, electrolytes, and antioxidants while you chew. Vitaplur is the perfect complement to my active lifestyle, whether it's at the festival, on the road touring, or hitting the gym. Chew Vitaplur and dance with confidence. Use code LizzieJane for 10% off any order. Denver is like the place where people go when they move to LA and they don't like it. <laughs> like that's that's how I, I love LA, but I've also been here for 11 years. So it's a little different. Being in LA for that long. I was in LA as a child a lot. And I did some acting stuff and like was like fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And then after like mid middle school was not back until post 18. And just in that amount of time, so much has changed. So I can't imagine you being in LA for the greater much so of a decade, seeing just like the ebbs and flows of so many different industries that you work in as well. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, you know, LA is not for them, but I've been here 11 years and for like the first, um, actually we're almost on 12 years now, but for the first, like like three years, three, actually, no, I'd say for the first like six or seven years now I'm thinking about it. I was only involved in like scoring. Okay. Um, so I didn't start like this project, Tiny Cat until I started DJing under the name Tiny Cat in, I think 2018, but just for fun, mm -hmm. like at like Burning Man, pretty much exclusively. Um, I love that. That's when I then, started Lizzie Jane too, 2018, just for yeah. fun. And then um, I started working on music again, just for fun. Like it was a, like a, I've always been really into EDM and I started going to major festivals and like, when I say major festivals, I mean like EDC um, in like 2014, 2015. But I, I mean, this is going to like age me, but I went to like Dead Mouse's original cube tour in like 2009 or 2010. Mm -hmm. That's where I started, but I wasn't going to like festivals. I was going to one-off shows. Um, and then, um, around like 20, yeah, 2018, 2019, um, people started hitting me up in the electronic world about doing vocals. And that was like a really new thing to me. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'm down. I didn't know anything about it. I was so like clueless and I was like, this will be fun. Um, but because I was just like doing things for fun, I ended up singing on a lot of stuff that I like didn't resonate with me. Didn't like, I didn't have much say in the production of it. And I've been producing music and writing music for, you know, over a decade. So, and I do all my own vocals, like everything I do. So to like have no control, I just had a lot of stuff come out that I didn't like under my real name. And so to differentiate from my name and from scoring, especially because it was really confusing to have those things starting to pop up on Spotify. Yeah. Um, I rebranded as Tiny Cat. It pretty much stopped doing top line, except for like people that I really resonate with or like friends of mine that I really trust and um, mostly sing only on collabs or my own tracks. And I dropped like the first uh, Tiny Cat track in 2020 in March or February mm -hmm. with Swarm. That was our collab, like Devils at Your Door, which is still one of my, like, that's the track that everybody knows. I love that track. I love Brandon. He's amazing. 
Um, but then the world shut down. <laughs> like yep, a month we later. We a good world shut down. Yeah. So like, I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make music. I'm so excited. The track did really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everything shut down. All shows ended. Like, I was like, all right, fuck. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do now. So I was like trying to, you know, all my work stopped because film and television couldn't film. So we had some things that were already filmed that we could work on kind of, but like everything stopped for me. Um, so I started working more on tiny cat and trying to figure out my sound. And I was listening to a lot of outside voices on what I should be doing. Um, that's a, that's a hard route because everybody's always going to have their like cup of tea, especially in this, in this socket and field of music. Exactly. And I was so new to the community and everything. And it's not that anyone was trying to uh, do me a disservice. It's just that like everybody had input and I didn't know who to listen to first. Um, And so I was letting other people kind of sway my direction. And I listened to so much music at the time within the genre that like I just had so many different things going in my head and I didn't really know like where I was going to land. So like my first few releases, like don't sound anything like the current project. And that's fine. It's all growth. And I learned so much from those releases. But I'd say like uh, my first release besides the collab with Swarm, which is funny because that's what my music sounds like now. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I did what I wanted the first time when nobody was in my ear and then people got in my ear and I changed what I was doing. And now that I stopped giving a fuck (laughs) and I have an amazing manager who um, like is so honest with me and uh, supports what I'm doing and loves my current sound that it's been really positive. So like everything in the last like year, especially has just been like me last year, year and a half. Um, And I have, I'm working on an EP now that is like a hundred percent the most solid I've felt about the direction of my sound. Absolutely. Well, thank you for the introduction. And and for those who are listening <laughs> who may not be familiar with you, you sit in a very unique lane all of your own, really. Um, I have like, I've had a lot of people from the scoring world and I've had a lot of people, obviously, DJs, artists, people who work in the industry. But I think you're the first person who's highly accredited really on both sides. And I think that's like a very interesting position just to be in like you've done extensive scoring work for video games you've done extensive work in like the back end of the industry creating um sample packs for splice working with brands like yamaha and more and then you have you know the songs that you featured on before the tiny cat project and now you've kind of stepped into your own where you did lost lands this year you've done a release with deadbeats and now you're working on your debut ep and it's it's really just kind of like a mind fuck on how you are approach. <laughs> it, it really is because you're so like accomplished in so many things and like your Thank IMDb you. and like your resume is just like there's so many things that you do that I'm like, how do you do that? Like I wish I like had my foot in the door to do this and like because like where I started which is kind of why I've just really wanted to have this conversation is I wanted to be in the world of scoring, but I ended up being a DJ and being a producer. <laughs> and it's like the, just the different industries and the way that, you know, pursuing your passion and your project as an artist and building that up is so different 
than the work that you do behind the scenes uh, and as a like, vocalist night and day <laughs> night and day and and still yet you're growing and continuously doing awesome projects and building on both sides i mean is there i guess i would love to know kind of how you got into scoring because the the EDM side of things is very similar and i feel like i i hear really a lot of the the same deal when it comes to electronic dance music it's like I was hugely involved in the scene. It was something I loved. And then you realize what you're doing outside of electronic dance music and you go light bulb moment. Oh, I can do this too. How do I do this? But you're very like, I'm just going to put my toe in the sand, in the water, whatever. And you make all of these like mistakes and figure things out and do this and do that. And I feel like so many times that's why you see people have this like previous project or this previous kind of like chapter in their electronic dance music endeavors. And then when they figured it all out, they're like, okay, now I'm going to start this project and this is what I'm going to pursue. But even with Lizzie Jane, I mean, you're working on your debut EP. My debut EP is coming out 2024. I've been doing Lizzie Jane since 2018. I mean, like finding that sound, especially in a time where everything is either extremely oversaturated, TikTok world, or they want you to be cookie cutter, but all of the fans and consumers want like something different and unique. It's really difficult to navigate. Um, So, I mean, do you feel like you juggle all of this fairly well, or has it kind of been a learning curve? Like, has there been successes and frustrations in the scoring and you know uh kind of like sample pack world that have translated into the EDM world and you pursuing your project or do you approach them as like two totally different entities that you're continuing to build in the beginning they were totally separate Mm -hmm. um but since tiny cat has gotten bigger, bigger than I thought it was going to get in a short amount of time. And I'm, I'm still like a tiny, tiny artist. Oh, sorry. Something's popping up on my screen. Um, I'm still like a tiny artist in my opinion. Um, but it's still bigger than where I expected it to be starting off as basically a pandemic hobby. Yeah. Um, and for scoring, I've been doing it for so long and it's funny because so many people in EDM want to get into scoring. And I get messages about advice all the time on how to get into sync, how to get into scoring. And I, I tell them, like, I'm not going to be able to give you the advice you want to hear because I had to work. I didn't get like a quote unquote break, which I still don't know that I've gotten until I scored my Netflix series in 2021-2022. I moved to L.A. in like 2011, 2012. That's 10 years. Um, yeah, everybody says that 10 year mark, no matter what you're doing, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's like, you just have to, like, they say, like, you're not a master of your craft until you put like 10,000 hours in or something. Um, and I even think that is a low ball, <laughs> uh, like number. Um, you know, I started out, I went to school at, well, I guess, first of all, I should rewind similar to you. I started as a performer as a kid. Um, in New York. And I was a singer. I've been singing professionally since like the age of seven, which sounds insane, but that's true. Um, I sang with the Metropolitan Opera Children's Choir in New York from like nine to 13. And then at 14, I went on tour with Cirque du Soleil. So I did that for like two and a half years. I was touring all over the world. Um, I left home at 13. And I haven't moved back 
existence. And so my childhood was not normal at all. I was a performer. Um, I came back and did high school for like a year, year and a half. I graduated early. Um, um, I came out to LA for like three months and slept on somebody's couch at like the age of 17, 18. Uh, Cause I, at that time I was like, I still want to be a performer. Maybe I want to be an actor. And then I realized quickly that I absolutely hate being on camera for the most part. Yeah. So that wasn't going to work. Um, I just feel like now if I'm doing like, I uh, direct and make a lot of my own vi- music videos for my project, but it's me controlling the situation when mm-hmm. it was somebody else controlling the situation and saying somebody else's words, similar to like doing top line. It just, it, I like to, you know, be in control of the creative process. Um, so I'd always been in love with scoring. I'd written music my whole life. I used to tour with a keyboard, um, with Cirque and I, you know, taken piano. Um, and basically, uh, I was on track to go to a conservatory for vocals. Um, and all of the schools that I applied to and auditioned for were a conservatory for vocals. And it was primarily classical voice, which is what I was doing for a long time, which is crazy when I think about it now. Um, And I got into a lot of very good schools for that. But I had this thing in the back of my head where like I wanted to explore some form of writing music. So I applied to Berklee College of Music. It was the only school that I applied to that was not a classical conservatory. It was also the only school that I didn't get a scholarship to when I got into. (laughs) Um, And thankfully, my parents really supported me and were like, if you want to go do this, um, we'll, we'll let you do this. I had worked so long as a kid that I had built up quite a savings, um, just from years and years of working and not being able to touch that money until I was like 18. Yeah. I could touch some of it, but you know, it, it, between that and my parents putting stuff away, I, I, I'm very grateful. I was in a really good position. And then once I got into Berkeley, I was able to gain a small scholarship from my, the work I was doing there, which was great. Um, but I've always loved film scoring. Um, you know, I, I've been a, like a cinephile my entire life. And at Berkeley, the first year you can't really pick your major or the first semester, you have to like take a bunch of intro classes and try stuff. And so I took an intro to film scoring class and I didn't really have any theory training besides vocally. Like I didn't, in terms of all I knew was how to play piano and just like the basics. I was never an amazing piano player. I couldn't like play classical from memory. Mm-hmm. Um, but I took this intro class and I was like, I want to try this. This is what I want to do. I might fail. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I have no connections in this industry. I don't have anything, but I'm going to do it. Um, so that's what I did. And I found out that I really liked it. I did really well in my classes. I had a professor that really believed in me and, um, I spent like a lot of time having him as like a mentor and he also really pushed me in my classes. And then I went and did an internship and like, I think it was my junior year, um, in Los Angeles. And I did an internship for two different composers. One was a, just like, kind of like a PBS, like small composer at the time. And then I worked at a production house for trailers and featurettes and stuff like that, uh, with a composer and a music supervisor there. When I came back from LA, um, they offered me a job and I still had X amount of dollars in a savings account. And I made the decision. I was like, you know, I can take a risk and move here and do this job with this amount of money in my pocket until I get on my feet, or I can put it into my senior year as tuition and then move out with no, no money at all. Um, so I made the decision to take a risk and move out to LA. Smart decision. Um, It was until I lost that job uh, 
like two weeks into it, they were like, hey, we're cutting the budget for the music department. You can work in the mailroom until you find another job. Yeah. So I was Love making that. like very LA. Uh, I was <laughs> making $10 an hour. Um, and uh, I had to drive like a truck uh, to all across LA and back. At, at the time, studios would deliver like physical like tapes of movies to like they couldn't like send much stuff over the internet at this time. It was 10 plus years ago. So I would physically deliver in safes like these pictures back and forth to Sony and Warner Brothers and back to the production house. And I did that for a few months. Um, and then I kind of remembered when I was in LA for my internship, the, you know, six months ago before that, I had taken a tour of remote control, which was Hans Zimmer studio. Hans Zimmer. Still is. Yep. And um, after the tour, there was probably like 20 of us in the tour, all interns. And uh, I, we got to sit in with a composer named Jeff Sinelli and he's still someone I work with currently. We just did something together. But at the time he was working on like one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And at the end of his little like spiel and tour with the students, he was like, if anybody wants to stay after, I'm going to keep working. You're welcome to stay here and watch me work. Ask me any questions, blah, blah. I was the only person that stayed out of 20. <laughs> Which is Isn't shocking. Incredible. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Like, like I, when you're I given that, that window of opportunity and people just, they just don't take it. it it's, it's wild to me. Cause you see it. I see it happen all the time now. And I'm just like, how are you? It's like when opportunity meets like your like window and just like where you are in the right time, right place. It's just like, how yeah. do you not take it? Wild. Yeah. So I stayed and what ended up happening through that was I stayed, chatted with Jeff a lot. We really hit it off. Um, he took me over to the mixing the mixing room or one of the mixing rooms at Hans's studio and Alan Meyerson was mixing in there, who if you know uh, much about how scores are made, Alan Meyerson mixed like all the Batman scores for Hans. I mean, uh, a lot of the the other Chris Nolan movies. Um, he just mixed, I think it's Fallen Jedi, the the new Star Wars game that came out for Gordy Hobb. Like he's if like one of the biggest mixers in scoring, if not the biggest mixer and a lovely human being. So we headed off, we all chatted and hung out that night. And then, you know, I went back to LA, did my thing. I stayed in touch with Jeff. When time came, when I lost my job, I emailed him and said, Hey, I know you mentioned you might be in the, you know, looking for an assistant. Is that still a possibility? I'd love to like put my, my name in the, in the hat, you know, and he was like, yeah, I don't really, at this time, I don't really need a, a second person, but let me get you in touch with the person who hires for remote and hires their interns and see if we can work something out. So he put me in touch with that person. Uh, I got brought on to do an internship. It was something like five weeks. Um, I made a very, another risky decision uh, for a minute for the first like week or two I was working my full-time job and interning at remote, which meant I was working um, at remote control from 8 a.m. till like 2 p.m. or something. And I lived in Burbank at the time, which for those of you who are not in L.A., uh, Hans' studio was in Santa Monica. They are complete opposite ends of the city. So far. So I, I would work, I would, and I lived in Burbank at the time mm -hmm. and worked there. So I would drive from Burbank at like 6 a.m. to get to remote at 8 a.m. I'd work from like 8 to 2 or something in the afternoon. Then I didn't have a lunch break. I would drive 
to uh, my other job and I worked the late night shift from like three to like midnight or something. And I was doing this five days a week for like two or three weeks. And I was just dying. I was like, this is not sustainable. Not sustainable. I'm, I'm going to, I was like, all right, I need to quit my full-time job. I have the X amount of time and the internship and just figure it out. So I did that. Um, and through that process, I had to take on a bunch of other little jobs. Like I started teaching voice lessons, which I never should have been doing. <laughs> like I have a ton of training, but like, it's very specific thing to teach voice lessons. And I, whatever. So I was doing that. Um, at one point, um, I took a job as a receptionist at a yoga studio. Like I was doing anything I could just to make ends meet because the internship, which they don't really do anymore, but that internship was unpaid. So at the end of the five weeks, um, they ended up offering me a position to be a studio runner and assistant. And I took it. That job started at $8 an hour. Love so it. again, <laughs> still had to do multiple jobs. There's no I went way. Back to, well, what I ended up doing is I'd work at the yoga studio from five in the morning till 11 a.m. Again, not take a proper lunch break. And I'd get to remote at noon and work noon to... Like it's technically it was probably like noon to 10 or something, but my goal was to just get noticed. So I would stay around as long as people were there. Um, and like, I'd go around to people's studios. I'd offer to like wrap their cables for them, do cable management. Um, I did coffee orders, food orders, all the boring stuff that you do. But I was in Hans's studio and I was interacting with Hans and all these, there's uh, legends, legendary legends legends under that roof. I yeah. mean, Ramin Jawadi was there at the time he started doing uh, Game of Thrones and I was there. I sat in for the Reigns of Castamere session, which at the time, like no one really knew how big that show was going to be. I remember I was watching his dog in the session, like stuff like that was like a daily occurrence. I met Ron Howard on my first day at the studio. He was like in the kitchen getting coffee. Like it was crazy. And it's something I'm forever grateful for. That, that makes was- it all worth it, though. You know, <laughs> I mean, I have chills. I was dead broke, but <laughs> yeah, but but it's like that, like so much of like what we do, like no matter like what form of entertainment you're in is like based on those risks where like you don't know, like you're putting yourself in this very vulnerable position where there is no plan B, there is no sense of security. You throw yourself and you say, OK, this is going to work or it doesn't work. And even though you were like bottom of the totem pole, you were in those rooms and people saw your face and they saw your name. And I'm sure that a lot of those early days were credited to where you are now. A hundred percent. I mean, I started a some, I don't remember how this happened, but it was really stupid. I, I like when I started working at Hans's, I was like, I'm going to be a serious composer. I'm not going to sing for people. I'm not going to be vocalist anymore. They'll never take me seriously. And that was the dumbest thing that I could have possibly done. But somehow somebody found out that I sang Wizard of Display. And uh, this composer by the name of Lauren Balfe, who I still work with today, he's incredible. He scored uh, Black Widow and Black Adam. Um, he's done the Call of Duty games. Like he's done a ton of stuff. He's a huge, huge composer. The recent Mission Impossible was him. Um he needed a vocalist on a little indie film. And he asked me if I'd be interested in trying some stuff out. So I did. Um, it went really, really well. And then from that point on, all the composers under that roof started hiring me. 
Uh, again, though, I didn't really know what I was doing and I was getting paid very little. I didn't understand union versus non-union and what an hourly should be. And yeah, it was a whole thing. But I'm still incredibly grateful, especially to Lauren. He's a dear friend now for taking that risk on me and putting me in that film. Um, yeah, I was there for like three years and some change. And I kind of didn't like, I stayed bottom-ish of the totem pole for a while. And I was in this weird place of like, I was still a studio assistant. I helped kind of everybody, but I was doing vocals on Batman v Superman. So I had these like weird relationships because I was working directly with Hans but I wasn't writing for Hans. Um, and that was always really tough for me because I feel like I was getting put in a little bit of a box where they people only wanted to work with me as the assistant and the vocalist and never gave me a shot to really write. And eventually, um, I'd made like enough relationships and stuff that um, I ended up getting a music coordinator job, which was helping music supervisors at a production house. And I was like, I'm going to go do this and try and get projects for scoring on my own with the credits I've already gained from doing American Horror Story, Batman v Superman, Thor, um, and see what I can what I can do. Because if I stay under this roof, it's very clear that no one is going to give me that opportunity for whatever reason. Um, I also had a very hard time getting hired as an individual assistant to a composer. I know for a fact that I lost certain jobs or during interview process because of being a woman. And I don't have a problem saying that. Um, I think a lot of that has changed now, but uh, often I was uh, judged for the way that I look or my gender. And that was a really hard pill to swallow. So I just felt like I needed to get on my own or start following my own path or I'd be forever stuck in this like assistant studio loop. like we'll lose we'll use you and we'll use you for what you're good at but we're not going to give you an opportunity to really shine and really grow and really do what you're here to actually do and correct and you're and especially you know obviously you know over in the dj world in the edm world we deal with that as well but it's yep. it's different we're you know on the business side of things you know agents may be twice our age in old males but who you're working with i'm sure 10 years ago in the world of scoring is all yeah. people your your dad's age and they're edm edm is such a young industry and i love that i i mean i'm i'm, I'm not gonna say how old i am but i'm definitely older uh than a lot of artists starting out um and that's okay with me but you know it's nice to be around people in my same age group versus you know scoring it's a lot of very very old men <laughs> um there's a lot of like boys club and it's gotten so much better a lot of big executives are now women there's a lot more diversity happening we're getting a lot uh you know streamers are really really doing a lot to include uh younger or just fresher talent not even younger just people that haven't necessarily gotten that opportunity and that's been really nice i think this old studio system is breaking and we're gonna see a lot of new talent cropping up and you know uh, gaining the the notoriety for the years and years of work that they've done um but and not to belittle anybody's experience in edm because i know that sexism is a thing and it exists in every industry that being said the amount of sexism i have faced in scoring versus edm is vastly different um, and 
uh, I am grateful to now be a part of an industry that seems to be a lot more accepting, especially now. I think it's gotten a lot better in mm-hmm. recent years. I mean, the fact that Lost Land put four women on a stage in an, and uh, gave Jeannie the opportunity to do the the girl gang lineup and stage was such a huge thing to see. Um, and being on that stage and being lucky to be a part of that and having four women who were all friends with each other. A lot of us have worked with each other. Everyone stayed for everyone's sets and everyone was there supporting each other. And the the weeks leading up to it, we were all talking about our sets and uh, sending visuals. And like, I have never felt that level really of support and just like camaraderie. And it was a really powerful energy on that stage. Um, I did something similar a few years back uh, with the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. Um, where I did two concerts called The Future is Female, and they were concerts featuring 12 women, female composers, uh, all showcasing pieces for either film or TV they'd done or original pieces. Um, and that was a really cool experience. And that's the only other time I've experienced that kind of camaraderie. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And the second concert we did at um, the Wiltern in LA, it sold very, very well. And we had executives basically from every studio from Netflix, Warner Brothers. Uh, It was pretty incredible. And one of those composers was just nominated for an Oscar last year. Love. We love that. And I mean, I will say as an attestament to Jeff, um, excision. Sorry, my computer is dying. Oh, no, no, no. You're good. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) <laughs> perfect that's that's literally me i have i have an alien a pc alienware and like it the the battery life on it is little to none and like my yep. screen will start my little alien will start flashing and when flashing. It's like that and, I'm, and i'm like in a lesson i'm like fuck i was like i've got 30 seconds give me one second i'll be right back and i have to like plug it in from the wall um you know and a testament to to jeff excision is that i I've been on enough tours to where I feel like I've been able to read between the lines and just feel like, okay, you're a representation of kind of a token female DJ here versus we're supporting you because we believe in you and we like the music that you create. And, and anytime I have been a part of anything with Excision's name on it or Mary or his wonderful team behind it. Mary's incredible. He's incredible. (laughs) But, but you know, it goes back to your whole discussion on the scoring side of things. It starts from the top down, whether it's in the agencies, whether it's on the teams or the A&Rs, the more women that are on the back end in executive leading roles, the more change you will see with the performers on the front end. And that's something that goes like, like apple to tree, A to B, like very, very easily read if you see the back end versus the front end. I've always felt at home, safe, not uncomfortable, and that they've put me in a certain place because they like what I'm doing. And I have been in a lot of other tours and positions where it's very easily kind of come through the lines. You are the token female here and you have to weigh what this opportunity means to you to be in front of X crowd or on X tour and, and the intentions aren't so very genuine and, and excision. He he's great. I mean, the whole team's great. There's, I think there's very few places even now that would have allowed for a stage takeover like that, that didn't have a big label that's working with an agency that's working with whatever, 
behind everything. And, and it was very cool. And now on top of that, you know, I've always said since I saw firsthand, you know, a little bit of the derogatory male versus female kind of deal where, you know, all of these females really get pinned up against each other. And it's like, oh, 100%. (laughs) You know, that's, that's something that was very hard to kind of understand. But ever since I saw that firsthand, I've been able to like, just understand the feelings behind it and realize that just as many men that don't necessarily see the value in women or the representation of it. And even in my short four or five years doing this, I've seen it change substantially. There were a lot of men on that stage for that whole night when I saw those videos. And it's, I I do believe that like, there is this movement where guys are understanding and they're becoming more accepting and they're seeing the value and starting to at least make an effort to see a woman producer versus a male producer sitting in the same range. And, you know, I, I want to bring up the topic of ghost production very quickly because I, one, I mean, I, I think it's a little bit harder for that to potentially happen because you all do work behind the scenes, you know, whereas ghost production is part of our industry. It happens on both sides. And oh, no, it's huge. It's and huge. OK, so, t- it's, so talk to me yeah. about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to go too far into it, but and and part of it is just how our industry is governed in scoring. It's not necessarily the fault of composers. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, every other department in post is allowed to have a team. Costuming has a team. They have a lead. They have the head costume and they have their team. Editors have a team. Like everybody has a team and it's fine. But for some reason, composers are supposed to have be this singular person with little to no help. And, you know, it's great if you are on one project or two projects and they're smaller projects. I mean, when I did my Netflix show, the only team and and it was a lot of music. Like we were, you know, doing 45 minutes of music per 50, 55, you know, long episode. But I had a long schedule. I wasn't on anything else major. I was dedicating all my time to it. So the only people working on that show were myself, my husband, who's also a composer. He was my additional on that project. And then my music editor. That was it. Um, But when you get to this crazy high level, when you're scoring, you see these, you know, top five people scoring multiple Marvel projects at once, or you're seeing people score 10, 12 projects, which is a reality. It's crazy that that is reality, but it is. They cannot physically produce the amount of music in these insane schedules that are expected. The schedules have ramped up so much in the past decade that it's just, it's crazy. Um, I mean, if you're working on network TV, for example, which is anything like Fox or CBS, not streaming, they're scoring week to week a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So they score an episode. It's, as soon as it's filmed, it goes to them, they score it, um, goes to the dub stage, they mix it, boom, you're on to the next episode. And that's like crazy. I've been on those schedules. Um, with streamers, you seem to have a little bit more time, or at least I have. They tend to do, it's the show's done all at once, and then it goes yeah. up. Um Similar to a movie, you just have a little bit of longer time um, frame than than most television. But so it is partially the studios responsible for that, and then partially the composers, because 
composers are not super transparent about what they're doing. Um, and a lot of these, you know, younger kids out of college are taken advantage of. Um, but there are plenty of instances where being an additional composer is positive and in your credited properly. I've been an additional composer on many accounts for wonderful, wonderful people who give me credit properly, who pay me properly, who give you cue sheet, which cue sheet is your where you're put as a partial writer and that's how you get residuals, which is a huge part of being a composer are residuals. Um, but then there are composers who, you know, underpay their employees, don't credit them properly or credit them as something that is not an additional composer because they want to receive sole credit, which I think is a pretty gross habit, to be honest. Um, and that I would equate to ghostwriting. Either they're not named at all as credited or they're put as music arranger or something. It's just like a, a faulty credit to not show that the lead composer is using other people. And it just does everybody a disservice. It keeps perpetuating this like toxic hidden thing. Um, but then again, with schedules and all this other stuff, that's not helping either. So it's not great. I feel like it's gotten better. Um, one thing I appreciate about, you know, someone like Hans at the level he's at is if you look at his credits, everybody's credited, mm -hmm. at least as far as I know, everybody's credited. Um, he did a, like a video for variety when, or something when Dune came out and he, all the band, the band, all the composers and like the, the instrumentalists he used were showcased. And I think it's really amazing when people do that and they, you know, uh, recognize that the score is not just you. It's all the people that helped you, if if that's the case. Um, so it's definitely a problem for us, but in a different way. Yeah. And I feel but I feel like there are very unique parallels to what you kind of just spoke about. And then the world of EDM where, you know the Tiestos and Hardwells of the world, there's no way. They're touring they nonstop. The capability when they're playing more than 300 shows a year and they're getting on a jet and going back in time and playing yep. another show. And, and, but there's a way to do it properly and there's a way to do it not properly. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that especially, I mean, the first kind of topic of conversation that comes to my mind is vocalists. I remember when I first started singing on tracks and Granted, I mean, I come from the world of like metal and post hardcore, and I had been playing. In I used to play in metal bands in college. There that we was, go. Like, the whole thing. So, I toured with yep. a metal band at one point. <laughs> I I toured with a post hardcore band, played bass, keys, and sang for junior, senior yeah. year of high school, freshman year of college, and I when I got into electronic dance music, like my first few years, I mean, the biggest thing was transitioning into a DAW because you're all sitting in a room writing and then it goes, okay, it's just you. Let's figure this out. Yeah. You know how to write music. Let's figure out the language. Da, 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 da. And thankfully through school, it was very easy to understand certain DAWs like Pro Tools certified, certain Ableton, you know, certified. And, and that gravely helped having instructors and mentorship. But when I kind of got with my first management team, again, big mistake, but like they had me you know, kind of being slotted for for demos, sending out demos to a lot of kind of dubstep orientated producers. And the first few songs I did, I wasn't even credited as an artist. You see it all the time where it just goes features this name, but then they're not on the actual track. You know, they're oh, not happened like to me. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, and another reason why Tori Letzler is not in EDM anymore, it's Tiny Cat because 
I had to put my foot down and choose the things I was doing. And yep. when I was doing stuff in the beginning, I was getting treated like garbage. Like garbage. And, and it's so, it infuriates me because so many of these huge tracks, and I'm not saying these vocalists in particular that I'm going to name were treated like this. I'm just using examples. Mm-hmm. You have Halion. You like, you have, um, Cara, oh my God, Ryan. Kayla. Yeah. Cara. I mean, Cara has been very outspoken about this and I, I think she's incredible, but the reason she left EDM was because for the most part, she was being mistreated for yes. the vocal production and the writing she was doing. I mean, you send like all of these big tracks, these like number one tracks in EDM, they 99% of the time started as a piano and vocal or yep. version of that that was sent to an artist. And then the track was built around it. It's very rare that people send instrumentals. I actually, I don't pitch top lines. I only will write on an instrumental if I do top line now, but partially for that reason, but also because it's hard. I, I like producing and doing vocals at the same time. Absolutely. But people are just so disrespected and I cannot understand why that is. And the reality is, is it mostly affects women. Yeah. It's oh, it, like, that that is the reality. And I think it's, and again, I think it's gotten a lot better than it was even pre-COVID, pre-2020. Sure. It, the same exact thing happened. I did a track in like 2019. The track did really, really well. And I was just starting to release under Lizzie Jane and my Spotify was not great. I didn't have a lot of tracks. And I was like, you guys, if I would have been credited properly on this, this would have been like a huge look for me. Like this would have like not only put you know, an okay amount of money in my pocket. But like, this would have been great to send as like pitches for tours and the next segue of music. And I was just so new and so unknowledgeable. And and it was like pitching me to some of their other clients. And and then you open the projects or they would send you the project and I would be sending out demos. And it's like, why am I not even producing on this? That was a whole nother aspect of like, oh, well, you sing. Well, we don't want you to touch this production wise. We just want you to sing on this. And it was this just- happens to me all yeah. like so I'm very myself and my manager uh, are very stern now. I've, I, I do get hit up quite a lot for top line. And the response, well, the response is if I have something available, I'm, I'm happy, you know, if, if I, something I, I, it's taken from something else or, but I, I know I don't, I don't write demos. I don't, I don't do top lines and we'll say, you know, the, really the only way you'll get her to do vocals is if it's, if it's a collab wow. and a collab, I don't mean equal credit. I mean, I am in the production yeah. um, and I have pulled myself out of collabs where it becomes very evident that the other producer does not want me touching the track. Mm-hmm. And they've disguised the collab as, oh, that's the only way I can get you to do vocals. Okay, well, I'll let you think that you're working on the track, but I'm going to undo everything you've done or take the. And the moment that starts happening, I'm out. Yeah. You know, I have a, I'm lucky to say I have a, you know, a very strong career in scoring. I've been for the most part financially stable for a while. And I don't want to put up with that shit. And I know I'm in a privileged place. Well, I mean, I worked for it, but like, I know I'm in a privileged place to be saying that, but I spotted it very early on with the doing stuff under my real name and then moving into collabs. And if I'm working with people or if I'm doing top line, it really has to be something that I believe in, you know, doing, um, I love singing on dubstep because I don't produce dubstep, Mm -hmm. but I love dubstep and I play it out in my sets. And so doing like, vocals for level up and hysteria and then the singing with genie and we're doing something again now like people who i'm friends with and respect top liners and artists like that i'm so down win-win. With. it's great 
It's a lovely like working environment versus somebody, some team seeing your credentials and understanding your background and where you came from and saying, we love that voice. How do we get it? This is how we get it. And that's where I feel like when you get out of these friendship circles and just people within the industry that that you know kind of have your back and have good intentions teams can just get fucking slimy and it's disgusting and it doesn't make their client look better when through all of these emails it's just a bit of bullshit to get you to do what they wanted originally i will say also like i don't consider myself a top liner that is a a skill yes. to be able i mean i look at uh, like people like uh, chandler layton she is like a mastermind of songwriting. Yes. She goes into a room with a bunch of people and they write a song in a day. And like, I, for the most part, am not able to do that. Not only does sitting in a room with a bunch of people make me hella uncomfortable, <laughs> but like, I just need to be in my cave by myself. I'm a very, I, I love working with people and sending stuff back and forth, but I am a very uh, recluse producer. I just mm-hmm. need to be in my own space and mess with stuff on my own time. Um, and not have the pressure of somebody, you know, sitting behind me watching what I'm doing. Um, and I admire the people that are able to do that, but that is not a skill that I think I possess. And that's why I don't call myself a top liner. I will do top line for people. And I, when it turns out great, I love it. And I would love to, you know, do top line on an millennium track. That would be an amazing thing, but I just, you know, some of those opportunities will not come to me because I don't, I don't write stuff like that in the sense of pitching demos. And that's, I've come to accept that that's okay because I'm just going to kind of keep pushing my solo music and then doing vocal work for people that are uh, nice to work with and appreciative and collaborative. Um, And so far, like recently, that's kind of hasn't been an issue anymore. I've just been like chugging along. I I can spot bullshit kind of like a mile away at this point. (laughs) I think a lot of that is setting boundaries. I did... I did the exactly. same thing where I've never, I I have a very unique voice and it's not, I remembered when I, in like pre, yeah, pre-COVID 2020 to kind of during and post 2021, I would get these, these demos and half the time they would be, you know, Kara or Run or all of the girls who are phenomenal top liners in the electronic dance music, you know, industry and community. And I'd go guys, my voice can't sound like this. Like if, if, yeah. if, the, if you want to work with me, then like you need to listen to all of the music I've put out and like, make sure you like my tone of voice. Make sure you like the uniqueness. I have a very raspy rock singer song, which I love, voice, which, <laughs> which I love. And then I think that like, it's so unique because of people like you and because of just other individuals and, and I'll, you know, I'll put it out there. You know, the, the uniqueness is I feel like it's, I've talked to a good amount of top liners. Like I remember when I had Danny King and Soundar on and they both are wonderful and you two of my very good friends. They're they're so lovely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I just remember talking to them and I just sat back and I was like, I could never fucking do what you guys do. The amount of demos, the amount of, you have to sing in this key and this is the melody we want. And this is this, I can't fucking do it. So at it. And then on top of that, every collab that I would put out that were songs that I loved that I had felt like I had a really strong foot in the production lane of it was always no she she just sang she didn't do anything else on this so it was like you have to take yourself out of those shoes 
And if you just have to write your own music and sing on your own shit and not have a single other person on it until they get the message, then that's what you have to do. And I feel like that's what you've done in your own way where it's it's like not like it's a passion project, but it's like I'm Lizzie Jane. I'm not here to work for somebody else. I'm not here to 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 do this. Like I'm here to create my own artistic vision. And if you like it, that's great. And if you want to work with it for how I sound, that's lovely. Let's make something happen. But if you don't, I can't be a cookie cutter individual that can replicate vocals. I wish I could sound like a lot of those girls, but I can't. And it's not, it's something that was really hard for me for a long time because like in the world of rock and in the world of singer, songwriter, indie, you get really all of these different flavors and colors and like you get yeah. to really be unique. But then you kind of hop over to EDM and it's like, no, this is like pop land. This is like, you need to sound like this if you're going to be played by Tiesto on Ultra at the biggest stage. And I was like, I'm never going to be that. Like, that's never who I'm going to be. So I just, you have to fully commit to yourself and like finding your sound and being okay with how you sound and embracing it instead of trying to force your voice into this range that it just simply will not accumulate to based on what I've been doing. You know, something uh, you touched on something that I have had to make peace with and recognize. And if people will know this more once my EP comes out, the kind of music that I'm making and the last like three tracks that I've had come out, I have uh, accepted that big artists are probably not going to play them out. And that's not shitting on anybody. That's mm-hmm. not saying like, it's just I don't make dubstep. I sing on dubstep and I'm blessed with the fact that those tracks get played out a lot. And that helps me reach a bigger audience because a lot of those people hear me and then they find my music and they're like, oh, we love this too. Um, but for the most part, I don't see in, in the current space, my tracks getting played out by a lot of people. Um, and that being said, like I look at somebody like Rez and her, she's such her own sound. and. Well, yes, it it is mid-tempo. Nobody else sounds like her. Mm-hmm. It's just her own thing. And the way that she has come up is doing her own shows and doing her own thing and staying true and having a really solid brand. So I know that there hopefully is space for me to just keep doing my own thing and connect with people. But I, it, it is a hard thing to be okay with all the time knowing that watching other acts that are smaller or or sorry uh, younger than me in terms of how long they've been around skyrocket very quickly because of the genre they're playing and it's constantly in my head of well am I just making bad music or is it just the the subgenre I've picked and you know for a minute I was making like mid-tempo dubstepy stuff and now I've really uh, moved into more of this, like it's, I wouldn't say it's mid tempo because it's fast. Like my EP goes between 110 to 130, and 130 is certainly not mid tempo. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm listening to a lot of artists in Europe that are doing this, like, like techno industrial, but like it's slower, like hybrid genre. Uh, people like Matteo Tura and uh, this woman named Sierra. Um, uh, there's just, some really interesting stuff happening out of Italy and France and Germany. And a lot of it has not hit the U S yet. It always starts over there before it comes. I don't know if it's ever going to hit the U (laughs) S it just seems like 
I feel like there are people that are listening to it for sure. Those artists are streaming really well, but I don't know how it's translating over here. I think like the closest people to doing what I do currently are like Lucille Croft. Okay. Um, but she's her. definitely headed in a more like drum and bass techno zone, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, we kind of started off more similarly. And then, you know, Alan, One True God, uh, who I'm, I'm mm-hmm. going to get to support in January, which is going to be awesome. He's doing like a, like kind of like a mid-tempo bass house hybrid. And that's in, in the same zone as what I'm doing. Yeah. So there are a couple artists and they're doing well. I know there is space for it. I think it's, it's just the reality of knowing that like, I have to be okay with the fact that it's going to take me longer to get to where I need to go. And hopefully it pays off. Well, no, and I mean, I think you've done what I've done in a very different lane, obviously, is you've made, it was very difficult for me. I think a lot of people who know me from Florida knew I had a residency. That was like how a lot of people, you know, it, it it's so interesting because you see other people's journeys and you think that your journey maybe needs to follow in a certain step like them. Like, oh, they came through, they did the residency, they got out, they got picked up by UTA, they went, they toured, now they're headlining, da-da-da-da. Certain person I'm referencing is no longer around and could have been the worst example that that I could have ever had as a, this is an artist, because it was as far as an artist as you could get from. And I think that that, once COVID hit and I was no longer in that position and coming out of COVID, I had the opportunity to kind of step in those same footsteps. After I had done my first two or three national tours, I came home, I was broke, I quit my full-time job and I had to make a conscientious decision if I, one, really, really loved making heavy bass dubstep music and two, could see myself being in a position where I elevated to a point where it not only created financial stability, but allowed me to fully express myself as an artist, taking in my background and my experience and what I had envisioned for myself long-term. And that answer was very quickly, confidently, no. So I had to backtrack and say, how do you incorporate your your past music life of doing post-hardcore and doing metal and singing and screaming and doing lots of singer-songwriter indie writing with the influences of bass music and electronic music and understand that everything I made from that point forward was not going to be hugely supported by DJs. The whole promo email kind of deal, I could send it and maybe people will listen to it and maybe they'll put it in their Spotify playlist because they think it's dope, but there's no way in hell they're ever playing that out. But you have to like, I feel like you have to ask yourself, are you in this? And and don't get me wrong. There's people who definitely make dubstep, bro step, drum and bass, wonky, experimental music who, who definitely are successful in creating longevity. But I think yeah. it's a lot harder when you're doing what everybody else is doing. and especially with these label takeovers and and girl girl gang's a different thing but with the artists labels i've always said you will never be bigger than the artist who created that label who's putting you on i i truly believe that i've never seen anyone elevate 
past that lead artist that has created that. And and correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I I don't disagree with that. I will say from experience, um, one of the labels that I've just had a really positive experience with has been Deadbeats. Yeah, yeah. Um, Not only do they just like, they've thrown me on a bunch of shows um, and they've support both female and male artists of all sizes. And I wish, like, I feel like so many other labels should look at them as an example of how to treat artists. They're one of a few that I feel like does a great job. And they are. I think the reality of that one is, like, it's hard to be bigger than Zed's Dead because, like, they just show up and, like, they just kill it. And uh, those guys are so nice. And everybody, with the exception of, like, lasers... Every single person gets the same level of production on those tours. We get the screens. They don't turn people down. They don't turn the subs off. Like, I've seen crazy stuff of watching my friends go and play, and they won't even mm-hmm. give a support act a mic to talk on. And I'm like, yeah. so the two things I, the two artists that I've seen really put on great shows with support acts from labels that they represent start to finish have been Dead Mouse and have been Dead Beats. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I don't know. But I think those labels and those artists understand that people are coming from for the show. They're coming for them, but they're coming for the show. And why would you want to diminish somebody's experience? They're paying for a ticket. And if they show up at doors or for any of the support acts, why would you want them to not hear that artist at their full potential? And I think it speaks volumes about an artist's confidence. And it also speaks volumes about their team and the label supporting them when you have the full support behind you. and. It just, it makes everything better and it makes the fan base want to show up for those big lineups. Well, and they sell out every single show. I mean, on both yeah. ends. And, and they I don't will even say, need support. <laughs> no, they don't even need support. And I will say that like of the few that I've seen, in my opinion, do it to set their support acts up for success, they have given acts a phenomenal platform and fan base to grow off of. And I think that's why releasing with certain labels, especially that have a touring back end to them, is a really smart move for an up-and-coming act with a new team and with like growing markets and putting yourself in places that maybe you haven't been before or you're going to do a headline show or da-da-da-da. But I think long-term, the only way that you're bigger than a Zed's Dead or than a Dead Mouse, and again, it takes forever and again, there's a reason why those select names aren't going anywhere and they haven't gone anywhere for a really long time is to do something different and unique. And that's kind of what like that back at that full circle that I was trying to create where it's like, I never want to shit on people who are giving people opportunities. But I also think that long term, if you're choosing to take the road less traveled, like you just have to understand that that your journey is going to be so different than the majority of your friends in this pocket because your goals are different. Your, your long-term plan is different and the music you're putting out is different. And it's one of those things where people are either going to love it or they're going to hate it, or they're going to hate it until everybody loves it. And then they're going to hop on the train and there's nowhere in between verse saying, I'm going to make a banger of a track. I'm going to send it to excision. It's going to be fire and it's going to be 115 and F minor and it's going to be perfect for every single dubstep DJ to play out. And it's like you can do both of that. I think there's a huge difference between like 
banger tracks and like records. And I think a lot of artists do both very well where you can tell it's kind of like something to really go off in like a club atmosphere, a festival, you know, large arena atmosphere versus something that is extremely streamable and part of maybe a bigger cohesive kind of you know, collective of records like an EP or an album, and it gives you more of a universe to play in. Like, I think that's what's so beautiful about EDM is you can do both, but there's very few people, I think, that are doing what what you and I are kind of aspiring to do and can really stick to their guns and say, okay, you know, more kismet, very good example as well. I think a lot of people listen to Omar when they first popped up and it was just one of those things where I heard them on SoundCloud and I was like wow this is out there this is dope and then all of a sudden their music started appearing everywhere and now there's tutorials and people who try to make music like more kismet and and like that's in my opinion like not the goal you know they are a producer that does now perform vocally and rap and I think that is so dope but having a performative I think aspect to your project singing having a live show having a live element is also just another like not necessarily hurdle but it's another thing that you kind of have to develop alongside producing all of these tracks that you're playing and and it's it's always interesting having a live element in club shows it, or, or at festivals that are predominant. Oh, dude, I've been having the hardest time. So at Lost Lands, I debuted my, my cat ears, which mm-hmm. are these LED, like cyberpunky things. Ooh. And I quickly realized that at the current way that my setup is, I can't use in-ears and the cat ears at the same time. Oh, no. There's too many wires and there's too many battery packs. It's like a whole thing. So I had to make a, a choice and I was like, okay, I want to do the cat ears. And like, when you're a small artist, uh, you know, I I've been lucky that most of the time I request a sound check, I get it. Um, mm-hmm. which has been really a blessing, but I, I had to pick and I was like, all right, I want to keep moving with the cat ear thing. So I'm gonna, you know, if I'm singing live at shows, I'm going to make sure that my monitors during those songs are turned up loud and they're facing me. If the if there are no monitors next to me, if they're facing out, I'm not singing live unless I have in-ears. Like, I have to be very cautious about the way that I do things. And, you know, eventually, if I get to a place where I have a bigger team or I have, you know, options to do an actual show that's just mine or support where someone allows me to do that, then I can figure out how to incorporate both those things and, and make it all cohesive. But currently... I just have to show up and be like, this is the thing I'm doing and I'll, I'll test it before the actual show and make sure I can hear myself. And if I can't hear myself, well then Mm-mm. we're not doing it. Yeah. Um, and I, I do like, I don't feel even bad about saying this. I, a lot of the time I just sing over the master and I'll just turn the master down in the mix because something about tiny cat also, as opposed to when I sing on scoring, the scoring stuff that I sing on, it's like, superheroes flying through the sky and it's like these big epic crazy like cinematic beautiful vocals and like church stuff tiny cat is the complete opposite of that and i want it to be i process the living fuck out of my vocals because Mm -hmm. i want them to sound processed to hell i want them to sound grungy and aggressive and sexy and weird and unless i'm singing with like uh, the the lead taken out but even the lead is processed and just over layers 
it's not going to sound the same. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that because my artist project is meant to sound a particular way and it's meant to evoke a certain thing. So if I'm going to sing over the master, I'm going to sing over the master and it's just going to be another layer and you'll hear me. But like my vocals are just processed to hell and I'm totally into it. And it's super fun for me. And I don't want it to sound like the pretty version of myself. And I think that was another thing, like you said, it's like, I'm not going to sound like, you know, the vocals you hear on some of these tracks that are played a lot because it's not the emotional. Actually, it's not true. I have a really emotional track coming out, but it's dark (laughs) and it's mine. But like for the most part, it's it's just not the vibe of the project, and and that's that's fine, and and people seem to jam with it. So, hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. You know that the whole singing thing in EDM too is very interesting because I've seen I've seen acts start not having a vocal element, and then they kind of incorporate a vocal element. But it's it's when I come to engineering my vocals, I either go okay, you're tuning this to all hell and we're going to do something very organic and very pretty or there's like four or five layers of my vocals and they're very distorted and they're not, you know, they're, it's, it would be very difficult to take them out and still have the same effect without having an audio engineer or them having my racks in, you know, you would have to have an audio tech there with you or I would have to be, MIDI mapping certain things through Ableton and running my vocals through Ableton, yep. which I'm just not at the place of an artist for a lot of people that I'm performing with to entertain that. It's just something that's not built into a rider at the current time. And that's why I think I take more of an organic approach. But usually when I when I perform and it's songs that are not heavily processed, um, you know, I'll put in, I'll do a re-export of my master with my vocals at like two decibels or three decibels. But I eventually want to drop those all out. But it's a very interesting thing because I've seen everything from people singing on top of their vocals to maybe they aren't even singing. I'm not sure to people. to Which sometimes you have to do. Uh, I'm not going to say what performance it was, but there was a, a very big performance that I did in the last year. And it's nobody's fault. It is like this is just sometimes what happens. Um, I was not provided a sound check, even though we requested it. You can be uh, fucked. You can be fucked. The tra- this venue was fucking gigantic, and the artist had not been in town. We didn't really get to coordinate anything, and I was only singing the first verse up to the drop. Mm-hmm. And I basically got like pushed on stage and handed a mic, and I, it was like go time. And normally, when I do my sets, I have a conversation with the uh, sound engineer beforehand. I go, "Hey, can you leave verb on my mic the whole time when I'm Absolutely. talking? Everything. First of all, it just sounds cool when you're talking. And second of all, it's just you pick up the mic. Everything sounds better with verb. Period. Absolutely. It'll blend in with the track. I didn't have that conversation with the send sound engineer because this venue was massive and it it was a huge tour. For you know, there was a lot more going on than me and the sport act. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, nobody's fault, but I had to, you know, not like I was kind of singing, but I really could like it, if I had just like belted it out, it would have sounded fucking terrible, probably because I I was on stage, no monitors, wouldn't been able to hear myself. Mm-hmm. So like that would have been at the, uh, like it would have made a not a good show for the people watching, and there was yes. a lot of people there. Yeah. So like that is just something that happens. And I but, see people do that all the time, but it's 
It's a circumstantial situation. Yeah. It's not something I actively want to do or choose to do. And I've only had to do it in like one or two scenarios. Yep. Um, I always try to like at least sing a little bit in the mic to like add that element. But like if you got no verb and you can't fucking hear yourself, like it's just it's not a good scenario. And especially like if you are a support act on a tour or if you are, you know, travel runs late, you don't get your sound checked. Da, da, da. I've had to make shitty ass calls where I don't sing. And it's like I've I've gotten to a point where I'm like, until I am at Alice in Wonderland level and I can actively differentiate DJ sets versus my hybrid live sets or fully live sets. I was like, yeah. singing is like part of my project. Like I've actively seen it enough now where when I sing, I capture fans. And I that is something I know I have to do yeah. during it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I'm playing at Soundbar in Chicago or a club in Boston or playing before dubstep act. Like I have to sing because that is what brings people to to realize that not only like I'm different, but they get the videos and we connect and the eye contact. Yeah, the moment, the moment you pick up a mic and start singing, everybody pulls out their phone. Everyone. And for a small artist, the possibility that you're getting posted on TikTok or posted on somebody's Instagram and reaching other people, it's it's great. And and the people in the crowd know that you're trying to do something for them and yes. put on a show. Yes. So like yes. Um, I, I will try to do it as much as I can, but you know, sometimes I think people don't realize like as a support act, you know, and as it, you know, kind of should be and is we just, we don't have like the resources that the main artists have, or I mean, like, it's just, it's not the same thing. So yes. it, and it takes a while to, even, I mean, I know artists that I think the general public would consider as big artists that are still in our industry considered support acts to an extent. Mm -hmm. And they're not even given the resources. I mean, I had a, I've had a VJ for the first time at Lost Lands, which was uh, fucking awesome. It's but like it's so I, different. It's such like oh an experience God. changing deal. Yeah. It was amazing. I got to do a custom intro and like, it was like, it was just, it was amazing. And it was like the closest thing I've had to like the vision of this project ever, but you know, money and time and it, it most tours where you're a support, if you are a lower support, they're not going to be able, you're not gonna be able to do that. No. Um, and that's fine. That is what it is. But like, I don't think audiences totally understand that. No, and I don't That's think that's also fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I don't think just I think now more than ever because of TikTok and because of podcasts and because of like, you know, people just speaking more transparently in the industry because I think it's not don't get me wrong, the agencies and and management companies and and labels do still control a lot of things that happen. I'm not going to say that that's gone away, but I think in the age of social media and reels and TikToks and all this stuff, there is this alternative journey and way to success and way to selling tickets and being successful in markets that wasn't there 10 years ago. And I think that's really awesome. And I think in turn, people sometimes speak more transparently about what goes on in the industry. And I've said this a thousand times on the podcast, but a lot of acts that are playing first and second doesn't matter how big the room they're walking away with no money they're walking away with little to nothing by the time you pay like 
I, most of my shows, like the photographer ends up going home with more than me. And that's mm-hmm. like, I'm not, I'm not shitting on photographers at all. Uh, you know, they, they deserve, deserve money to, too. They, yeah. they deserve their money. But like, it's just, I, I'm like, okay, if I didn't have the career in scoring that I have, I would not be able to be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't have been able to do the custom intro or hire a VJ. Like there are Mm -hmm. certain things that I get that most artists at my level might not be able to do, um, you know, little things, but I like, I don't think people realize between flights and photographers and hotels, which sometimes it's covered. Sometimes it's not. And I, I feel lucky that my fees have been increasing and no one seems to really fight me on them but i have definitely i've well i've turned down shows which i never want to do because i'm just like i can't even cover one night but of the, the power of no is strong the power yeah. of no is very strong and it's you know for certain opportunities yes i will pay for i will play for a ship fee walk away with nothing everybody walks away with more than me but you know what i walked away with so many, with, with the number of new fans I would get playing support on a whole tour in one night, that is worth it to me. You have to make those boundaries and decisions on your own, but it sucks though. It's like, but on the other side, (laughs) exactly. But on the other side, you know, I've come to a point where we've been offered great tours for little to no money. And I can't do it to play second in a thousand cap room where I know that I'm going to be playing to 200 people and I'm walking away with nothing. And I think it's also important to note that unless somebody is a big headliner, like a big, big headliner, that artist is not necessarily making a lot either, which trickles down to their support support acts out of their own fee. Yeah. Which I don't think people know. So you can have an act that while it's not an excision level, it's still, you know, selling out venues or close to it and playing bigger shows. Like they are making less than probably people think they make. And they also are paying for full production. Mm-hmm. They're paying for probably a TM. Like it's just so, you know, Agents, they might be not, management. Everything. Yeah, it's just so much stuff. And like, by comparison to like the pop world, EDM is small potatoes. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I'm yes. okay with that because I love how small the community is by comparison and how tight knit people are and that there is still this semblance of plur that exists. And you can, you know, walk into a festival by yourself and come out with a fucking 10 friends. Yeah. That's why yeah. I love this. And, and that's why I loved going to festivals and still do. You will not get that in a mainstream genre for the most part. Um, but the reality of that is, even though you go to these festivals and the production's crazy and you see all this stuff, it, it's nowhere near pulling in the, the money that like the pop world is. So, And everyone's struggling. Yeah. Talent buyers are struggling. Tickets aren't yeah. moving like they used to be moving pre-COVID. Still three years, two years out of this. Like everybody's hurting. And I think it just comes from a level of compassion where it's like, I, I don't think the average fan realizes that most artists that they would consider to be nationally touring acts, a lot of them have full-time jobs or they work remotely and have full-time jobs or they do side stuff in the music world like Foley or they have writing. To. They have to. And, and all of like my 
privilege to being able to reinvest in certain experiences for certain shows. That money does not come from touring money. That comes from podcast money. That comes from work money. It it all flows into this huge thing where it's like, yes, are you doing this at, at a legitimate level? Yes, are you recognized in touring nationally? Yes, but are you making enough to drop everything and wake up every morning and and say, I'm just going to write my days away? I don't know if in this specific lane, anyone gets there without having the opportunity to make enough money to turn around and reinvest that into whether you're doing stocks or your own business or you're doing brand deals or sponsorships. It's like the alleyway to being a large act is the way that it opens doors for you to actually make real money. Yeah. And currently, all of the money that I make from Tiny Cat goes back into Tiny Cat. Yes. My yep. my day-to-day is supported by by scoring. Yeah. Um like any like anything i pay i pay out you know my management and i anything else goes straight back in i mean that's still going in the project too cuz ian is incredible and he just you know pushes me so far but like yeah it all goes back in and you know most people that are doing this the way that we're doing it and all the time and not just as a hobby they're doing it because they fucking love it and they can't not do it Yes, but yes. it's definitely going to take a toll on people financially and mentally, and that's why you see so many artists that have to step back from touring or have to take a mental pause, which is healthy, and they should. And they should, um, yeah. And again, I'm really lucky in the fact that uh, I I don't drink and I don't really uh, substances for the most part are not really for me, with the exception of things here and there. But you know, a lot of people, if you're in a party environment and in these clubs and these festivals all the time, if you're like dealing with anxiety as I do, I have severe anxiety, you're self-medicating with substances. And so it's just this, you know, cycle of being in these environments and it can really take a toll on people. And like, there's, there's so many factors that, you know, you really have to love this if you're doing it. You do. And health and like mental wellness are like just a huge other conversation that I think now more than ever is getting light shined on it and people are talking about it, which is great because the first step in anything is talking about it and understanding the risks and how to approach certain things. And I don't think there's any human, no matter how healthy you are, no matter how much chicken breast you pack in your backpack, can <laughs> can play, uh, you know, can travel every day across the country, play a show, leave that place at 2 a.m., go to the airport by 6 a.m. and do it all again for three out of seven days every single week and it be mentally sustainable and then all the while be financially stable and be able to create. That's very difficult. And I've found great success in monitoring my same thing with me. I've I've it's funny because like I went to a private school and and I was like not the bad girl. I was just the weird one who was like in this band touring and everyone else was like, yeah, Yeah. everyone else was in theater, but yet everybody's parents, if I did something, they trusted their kid to do it with me because they knew I had this like outside life experience where that was me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I feel like I've talked to other people where it's like, which I'm not perfect, by the way, I made some stupid mistakes, mistakes, (laughs) but I made it. I, I see people making the same mistakes that I made at 15 and 16 now. 
And I don't know if that's like accelerated life experience. I don't know for whatever reason it is, but it was just kind of this thing where like I was around drugs when I was 14 and 15. Like I saw it. I was able to partake. I definitely like it's kind of one of those things where I would try things and I would say, okay, like I don't have an addictive personality. This did nothing for me. I'm, I don't really that's have a desire mean. to ever yeah. do it again. And I think that's been a blessing in this industry because I've definitely seen incredibly talented individuals get very lost when they've had that moment of opportunity. And it unfortunately goes to the Lee side because they just, whether they have that addictive personality or they're around the wrong people, it's very, very hard. It's like this uphill battle kind of deal. And I do feel like women in this industry and also people who maybe don't have that party party mentality. I feel like my circle is small in this industry. Like even living in Denver where there's so many DJs here and there's so many artists here and you're in LA where there's even more artists and there's even more industry people. I mean, LA, there's a, there's a show every night and every night. I, I love going to shows. Um, and I just have to, I have to weigh it out sometimes of like, like th- there's a show tonight that I wanted to go to. Um, but I'm just like, I'm on two movies right now. I'm working on my EP and I like, I just can't, I can't like my brain cannot have the bandwidth to then go to a show. I love going and supporting my friends. And I love, especially in LA, like when you go to a show, like there's so many people there and it's, mm-hmm. it's people that can be from other cities. It's agents. It's such a good way of you know, uh, keeping yourself in the loop. And I love it. And I love obviously the music that happens and it, being in LA or being in Denver, you're, you're very lucky because the industry is very strong in these cities very. and the, the culture is very strong. I mean, a lot of these cities are responsible for the blowups of certain genres mm-hmm. and that's a cool thing to be a part of and having the best venues and all this stuff, but I do have to weigh it out. There are weeks where I will go to three shows in a row and then I'm like dead. You're dead. Um, and especially if I'm touring, which I did, like, for me, I did, uh, like, I started really doing shows this summer and fall, like really doing the schedule, which I hadn't done before. And after Lost Lands, I was like, I'm not going to a show for the next like month. I just need yeah. to like sit in my studio or like sit in my bed and decompress. The other thing that people don't talk about so much, actually, I was somebody like David Getter or somebody, somebody big actually made a TikTok about this. Or was like, when you are on stage, you are at level 100. There are all these people just oh, like going out. Dude. And then you, if you're in some random city, you, I mean, or not, but like, if you don't know anybody, you are back in a hotel by yourself. Like I went on a ghost tour in Charlotte, North Carolina, just because I didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. I was there the night before the show and I wanted to get out of my hotel room and walk. Yeah. Like, it's just eating healthy can be really difficult because, you know, if you're in the middle of the country, stuff closes really early. The only thing that's open is like Taco Bell. Like it's just, you don't have a choice, but like, man, the duality of like all these people being like, Oh my God. And I'm like coming and sitting in your room by yourself at three in the morning. Especially like, what the fuck? Literally like what the fuck? And it's been like little things that like over time that I've like learned like I'll order like two meals from the same place, like one for now. I one do for the later. same thing. Yeah, because so that in that way I'm not ordering shit. Or like what I used to do, like when I was doing tours in like 2021, which was the first time that I felt like I had dates dates, I would just not eat because I was so conscientious and I had like a little bit of a thing that I had to get over. And it was like, 
you like can't not eat, Liz. Like you like you can't just shut down and not eat and just drink water. Like that's not going to work. Ideal. Like I can't. Uh, my anxiety is very bad. So usually before a show, I'll eat a big lunch and then mm-hmm. I have to eat after if I'm if I'm going to eat because I will straight up like I can't physically like it's not that I don't want to eat. It's just I'm so like adrenaline like yeah. going like I can't. And but then after the show, if I can, I'll like house it. And that's like I have like chips and salsa on my rider and stuff like that. So like when I'm there and a little more comfortable, I can like pick on stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's very hard for me. Like I I like um I like gag from anxiety. Oh no, what? So oh. like um it's funny. Once I'm like at the venue and on stage, totally fine. Even in the green room, totally fine. But, but like, it's the day I, beforehand. It's the whole it's day not even the, up to that. At Lost Land. So we got there on Friday. Mm-hmm. I didn't play till Sunday, the last set, 2 to 3 a.m., right? Dude, the buildup to my first big festival set, fucking gnarly. And so at like, I was like, okay, I have to play really late tonight because um, I'm an old lady. And <laughs> I was like, all right, we're not going to go into the festival till like 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. My, you know, Sippy goes on at 11. I want to support her set. We got to take pictures like so i'll go in like right before the stage opens and i had done sound check earlier that day um come 8 p.m i am fully dressed my makeup is on and we're in an airbnb with a bunch of people i am just pacing oh I am pe- no. and, and my manager looks at me and he's like i think we should i think we should go in it's <laughs> like yeah. you're gonna feel better if you're surrounded by people you're watching other sets you're there like and he was right. I just needed to like, everyone was like, we just need to get in because you're, if you just sit in this like Airbnb and just think about what's going on, you're going to like lose your mind. It's the mind fuck. I mean, I remember after leaving the residency where I was playing every week, which again, it's kind of one of those things where like, I, I think I had played two shows before I got this residency at this big fucking club that Disco Donnie ran. And like, I I have very many thoughts about the residency thing in general because I know a lot of people, especially people from Florida, which is kind of weird. A lot of people came from residencies and they were also producers at the same time. I think it was just the amount of people that you could kind of attract and like start to build that base in that like home state market. But I remember having that, leaving the residency, going through COVID and then having my first few shows after that. And I was like, do you remember like how to DJ? Like, are you actively like, okay to step up there and like, remember how to like, and like DJing, I mean, I get it. I think curating sets is definitely a craft of its own, but DJing is really not a hard task. But I just remember like the feeling of being on stage and something that I did weekly routinely for a betterment of two to two and a half years of my life and then didn't do it for six months. It was like, okay, are, do you remember- Dude. <laughs> when when I did um my my show in Chicago with Deadbeats, which went really well. Um that was at Aragon was, Ballroom, right? Yeah. Biggest yeah. venue I've ever played, by the way. And people like it was I was at doors, so like the beginning was like not super full because there was a security line out the door. But halfway through my set, there's thousands of people. And it's yeah. like my first big venue show. And I'm like, I had never touched three thousands before I showed up at my sound check that was my and show at armory with excision that was the first time i played on 3000s i was like Fuck now that. yeah now i've been playing on them and it's fine and i'm i'm used to it but i was just like there's just like said so like i load my settings into the decks which i guess uh, people don't always do and like mm-hmm. there's certain things like 
I, I was just, there's a, they are done slightly differently on the three thousands. And I, I dude, I was so scared. I was so scared that like, I was like, I don't know where this button is or this thing is. And like, they're not that different at all. But like, I was just in my head about like, oh shit, I've never touched this gear before. This is going to be terrifying. But the second you get up there and get through the first few transitions, you're like, you're fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. You're like, it's literally the same thing. Stop being a baby. But yeah, it's literally the same thing. Stop being a baby. But it's like, again, it's the mind games and the more, and like, that's why like to this day, I think going into like the next era where like I'm doing legitimate live sets, not just singing, like including instrumentation and stuff like that. That's something that you plan, you know, I've been making now. I think I'm at minute 43 of an hour and you create a set and you use the same fucking set for a year and then you create another set and you do it for a year with like the DJ hybrid sets. I mean, like I'm in my green room before I go on, like still not doing a final export of my set. But I think it's like something that's been just a method for me to not think about the actual nerves of performing or being like, oh, you can't do this. You can do it. because I'm so focused on something it helps else. It, yeah. But but it's just like I found that I perform well that way. And then in other aspects, I don't perform well that way. It's like these little things that are just so unique and different to everyone. And then again, what you were saying about the duality of the highs versus the lows and and. It's not necessarily like the lows. It's just being in a room of a million people and like having these people come up to you and compliment you and like really just like blow smoke up your ass and like, or like you're like hanging out with friends or you have a big guest list or it's everybody in one green room and it's a big fun time. And then you go home and you're like alone and you're like, wow, that was amazing. And you're still running off this high. And it's like having a significant other who is not in music and does not work in music, which I think has been one of the greatest things to like ever happen to me just for the type of individual that I am, that it's really allowed me to like really focus on my goals and being my own person and not succumbing to what other people say I should be doing or, oh, if you did it this way, you'd be doing this now and all that stuff. And it's like, he'll notice. And it's something that I still work through. Like this past weekend, I had a killer show in Boston and I come home and it's like, I'm still riding off that high. And it's like, I drank like an energy drink oh my and God, like a shot yeah. of espresso and he's like you're like annoying the fuck out of like, me and go I'm the like, fuck to bed yeah Dude, yeah yeah so my my husband he does work in music but scoring mm-hmm. and he he loves to go to raves and like he's the one that really got me into the big side of festival things but that being said most of the time he doesn't come to show he's not coming with me for 24 48 hours to yes. city he'll come to the big dates like he came to lost lands but like he has to work and like it's not so i'm by myself but I'll, I call him after my shows and it's late. I mean, he stays up kind of late and I'm like, ah, blah, 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 blah. I'm like talking and he's like, what? Are you okay? Like, <laughs> sounds like you took like fucking speed and it's just like your adrenaline's still going and like you need to like vomit out all the like the stuff yes. that happened. Like, cool. And he's like, okay, cool. Glad it went well. Bye. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. No, literally like, okay, cool. And it's like, they obviously think what we do is like the coolest thing ever. And like, that is yeah. like, and, and, and I know that he's always extremely supportive of me, but like, sometimes I come home and I'm like, the world's running on a thousand and I have a million things to get done. And I expect you to get a million things done too. And that's just like, not, it's that high that you still have from like that. Experience. I also have ADHD, which doesn't help. <laughs> no, that doesn't help. That definitely does not help. Yeah. It's, it's all of these things that you kind of deal with. And I'm, I am curious, like, I do feel like when I have somebody traveling with me, 
not that it makes it a bit better. It just takes my mind off of certain things that I feel like I would be thinking about or running overtime on because I have another person there with me. But it's still like, it's just this really weird thing. And like, and I can't imagine how people like the Rezes of the world, like the Zed's Deads of the world who've been doing this for the better half of, in Zed's Dead's case, like a decade plus, you know, dealing with those, those feelings and just finding, and I'm sure it's just like the things that you figure out as an up and coming act, like you figure out ways to deal with that and like deal with other individuals in your life while having that like come down or come up or that energy sustainability. And, and it's, it's a really interesting thing. And again, I just think that we're so privileged to be able to do this. And like, there's a lot of people, I always remind myself every time I get down on myself or, you know, today all the Spotify raps came out and, you know, I think that's a really hard day. It's a hard day for a lot of people. Yeah, it is. It is. But you know, then you realize and you're just like, dude, like so many people would kill to be in your position. And for one reason or another, you know, they aren't. And, and I think that's just something that you just have to remember all the time. And also remember that there's just so many like external factors as to why certain things happen to certain people and to play like the why not me game will just never do yourself justice. Like you just have to like, stay focused in your own lane. And again, going back to what I said earlier with us choosing really the path less traveled, you have to have like a strong fortitude of confidence that like you're okay with not getting certain opportunities or certain praise or certain support because you really are on a different path than like your A to Z EDM journey as an artist DJ. I think it's also like, um, I did a show where, uh, to me, the show was not ideal. My set was fine, but there was very few people there. It was part of a very large lineup and it was during the day. And, you know, I, I went in knowing that it was a possibility that a lot of people wouldn't be there. Um, and, uh, my visuals were not played out. Someone else's visuals got played out. There was like all kinds of things that, yeah, not only that, it was an artist that wasn't on the lineup. So I was very confused how that happened. But regardless, and I didn't realize till I looked at photos and video after. But like, it just wasn't, it wasn't ideal. Um, and I got off stage and I was so hard on myself. But then I went back out to watch the other artists. And there were, there was a group of girls that had been on the rail during my set. And I came back out and they called me over. And I went over and I looked at one of their wrists and I was like, are you wearing tiny cat candy? And she goes, yeah, I made it. And I made a bunch of them and handed them out to the crowd. And all of the people that had been on the rail, there wasn't a big crowd, but there were people on the rail were all wearing them. And I I started fucking crying because as a small newer artist, the fact that anybody Mm -hmm. is, is reacting to me and listening to my music by itself, but like reacting to that way or buying a ticket to see me, especially when it's part of a larger lineup with larger artists that redeemed the day. And I had to just like check myself and be like, just because you didn't necessarily think that this was, you know, a great show for yourself. There were people out there that still enjoyed it. And when I'm on stage, by the way, I don't care if there's one person or 5,000. I'm still going to give the same show. And I will always be like that because those people that are there paid the same amount as everybody else and showed up to see you. And so Mm -hmm. they deserve the same show as everybody. Yes. But that being said, 
even though I'm giving 100, 110% on stage, when you get off, the, the reality of being hard on yourself hits you. But that I, it was like a big reality check of seeing like, yeah, there was this group of people that solely bought those tickets to come see me and made the effort to pass out this candy and care so much and just wanted to hug me. And like, that was like, all right, I got to remember that 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 exists. And like, there are people out there that I'm connecting, whether it's a big show or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I it just those it's those little moments that put everything in perspective. Yeah, because I've got I've been especially the first few tours that I was a part of. I was like, just very new and didn't have like, good, not not mentorship, but just like, I don't feel like I had a really good like network of individuals to maybe give like proper advice on certain things. And I would always just be in the middle of my head. I'm like, I just hired media. There's nobody here. I'm playing for five people. But then afterwards, it's like, you know, you're I had still a photographer giving- just show up 30 minutes late into my set at a city. And by the way, I still Bro. paid them their full amount because I don't want anyone thinking that I'm like a shit person. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like so scared of like someone being like this person. And so I was just like, okay, but they literally shut up 30 minutes into my set and That's I'm wild. Yeah. I'm by myself. I don't have my management with me. I don't, you know, I, so like you just have to roll with it. But I was like, like, what the hell, man? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I had a, it was actually funny. It was actually the club that I just played this past weekend, which was such like a, a kind of growth moment for me where I could look at photos from 2021 and then look at photos from 2023. And I was like, okay, like you're moving the right direction. Like this yeah. feels a lot better. <laughs> but I remembered that my management at the time had hired on their in-house media and the rate of the in-house media was more than I was getting paid. And he had, and he had come into my green room after it was like a shared room and he was like hey how do you want to settle and I was like in my head I was just like oh well like my management hasn't told me like what I owe you yet but like I'll make sure I settle with you like let me know and he was like yeah it's gonna be like 450 and I'm just like, what the fuck <laughs> I was just like yo what and I remember pushing him off to my management because I was like none of this was communicated I've never paid somebody yeah. 50 for a set and like it was just a really like learning experience and again it's just there's so many little lessons you learn along the way that you go, okay, not going to do it like this again, going to do it like this again, but all the while making sure that people are like appreciated and compensated for their work. But you also oftentimes like two things that always like sit in my own head is like, don't spend out of your own pocket of everybody's situation is different. And like on the like fact of like burning bridges, like not everyone is always as genuine as you're going to be. And, and sometimes and you have, that's to why it. I paid yeah. the photographer. <laughs> yep. yep. I was like, I'm not going to risk this person saying anything negative to me. I'm just going to pay them. And then. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm probably, unfortunately, until I, I get to a larger level and that, you know, I don't have to maybe deal with that stuff. I'm always going to be like that. Cause it's just like, uh, someone told me a, a saying where it was like, just got to charge it to the game. And I've been like, <laughs> like it fucking, it's painful, but I'm just like, all right, we're going to charge that one to the game. Oh, oh my God. So true. That's I did so merch true. for the first time at Lost Lands. Boy, oh boy. Oh yeah. Damn. <laughs> um, I'm not going to get into it too much, but I can't man, imagine. shipping stuff to a festival is so fucking <laughs> expensive yeah yeah and I hardly have I like I hardly made any merch I just did like a little bit to like you know have stuff at the festival and do a test run and I'm just like I just got absolutely raped on like shipping yeah 
I was just like, and then you got to ship it back if it doesn't all sell. I'm like, and or they take you a percentage take it in your life. And then it takes them a million days to pay you out. And Dude. then, and, and that's with anywhere. I, I, I totally get why a lot of artists just do it online. I totally understand that. Until, oh, yeah. you're, until you're to the level where you have your own company shipping, they already have prepackaged, discounted shipping labels, and they're handling everything. But like, even then, I mean, like, Red Rocks, like we sold out a merch both nights, but like at the end of the cut that they took, I maybe made one to two dollars off of each product that we sold. Like yeah. it's yeah, it's just that's the reality of certain things. And, and that's and- just not EDM. That's like it's actually even worse in metal. And mm-hmm. like I was actually surprised at how low the percentage was uh at this festival versus like I wasn't selling merch when I was on tour with this band because I was a guest performer, but they were getting like like 40 50 percent was getting taken out great yeah yeah so I, yeah. I haven't really encountered that yet and I, I from what i've understood that that's not necessarily a thing in edm it's not quite that high but like yeah that was a big learning curve and that was a another and merch is how many moment <laughs> yeah merch is like how a lot Most of artists, artists a lot of money a lot yeah. of money like that like when i have a solid merch drop that does really well I walk away with about the same money that I walk away with off of maybe two or three dates after expenses. Like, like it's, it's a huge thing. And that's why I understand why all of these A-list acts, like all of the big guys, like when you have the money and the team and the rotation to drop merch all the time, it is a wonderful way to actually make money to reinvest back into your project. It is. It is. and But if but, you're as small as me, maybe don't ship stuff to a festival. <laughs> maybe don't ship stuff to a festival. Or or the other thing that I've seen discussed in our little Twitter chat or the Girl Grain group is merch contracts with sleazy-ass merch people that say we're going to forward you all of this merch and we're going to pay for all of it. But then you owe us all of this on the back end and then you still owe us if it didn't sell. And like all of that, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you saw that, but there were. I missed few, this, but yeah, that's bananas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've like had certain individuals come to town when I lived in Tampa, and they were like, "Yeah, I owe this merch company like four thousand dollars." Like, and like, I'm never gonna like like merch that like accumulated interest, like like just wild shit, wild stuff. So, I mean, thankfully, the company that I've been working with has been awesome, and I know a lot of other people use them. Yeah. Um, at least in LA. So that's been good. Do you do the but... merch shop? The oh God, what is it called? Where people go and they press their own merch. I think that's so cool. And I don't know what it's called. A ghost in real life uses it. I've seen Jeannie there. I've seen. Oh yeah, years. it is. It is. It's merch box. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I, I haven't pressed it myself, but uh, yeah, that's where I get mine done. And they're okay. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that looks very cool. They're awesome. Um, I went in, I tested all the stuff. Honestly, I think they do the, like the majority of women in base. <laughs> I because, love that. Like, at least I live in LA, um, which is super cool. And they just, they have a lot of options. Their pricing's good. Uh, yeah, I, I love the work that they did. They actually designed, I was working with a, like a, more like a public version of my logo. Like it was an image that I liked and I was using it for years. Um, but they created my actual new like icon for Tiny Cat, which is great. I didn't know that they did that. So shout out to Merchbox. <laughs> Love that. That's amazing. Do you um do you like the culture of living in LA? I mean, I figure you would because it's like you've been there for eleven years. But I also you have been in electronic yeah. music for eleven years. Like that whole culture. Is it a lot? Is it manageable if you're around the right people? I've heard everything from it's a nightmare to it's like my favorite place to be. 
I, I love it, but I'm in, I'm just, first of all, I'm older. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I first moved to LA, when I was like 20, um, 20 turning 21, um, I didn't know anybody except for, cause I was a performer. I knew actors. Uh, I went to performing arts high school for a minute. So like, I knew like people that were on TV shows, I was very much ingrained in like the Nickelodeon and Disney world. Mm -hmm. Um, and when that was like still a thing, when they, like Miley Cyrus would like show up to parties I was at that, oh that, le- that age group, like that thing. Yeah. Um, and they were like wild house parties or going to clubs with promoters and being at a table. Like one of my best friends was a promoter and I was like at a club every weekend, which I would hate now. I can't even like, that's such a different version of myself, but I got wrapped up in that world for a minute strictly because I was lonely and I didn't know anybody else. Yeah. When I got further along into scoring and started developing a network there, I, I quickly started getting away from that. But I would imagine if you're young and, and some of these producers, like I look at uh, ISO and knock to who are fucking incredible and killing it, but they're so young. And I, mm-hmm. I wonder about these really young artists, if, if they're okay in these scenarios and like, how, how do they deal with it? Because I wasn't necessarily okay. It was so much to digest. Mm-hmm. even in like the small club world that I was involved in. Um, and I mean, like I was so broke when I first went to LA that I would go to fancy like Hollywood mansion parties to get free food. Yeah. Like that was the level of broke that oh. I was. <laughs> yeah. Cause yeah. I knew that like, if you like, I remember I showed up, there was a house, big house. They were doing a rap party for Glee. How the fuck I got invited. I don't know, but I was like, they're going to have awesome food. Like that was my one reason for going. Um, I'm surprised I didn't have like bags in my pockets, like put stuff like yeah. the waiter. But, <laughs> but like I did that. But then, you know, as I got like uh, 22, 23, 24, I, I pretty much taken myself out of that. And again, because I don't have issues with substances, it does make it easier. Yeah. Um, not, you know, most people for the, to be honest, have some sort of issue. It's just so yes. ingrained in our culture. Um, but eh, LA, you have to really have like a strong sense of self and a a bullshit meter. Yeah. Um, And I think coming into EDM at an older age and finding my people, like uh, there's a lot of clout chasing that goes on in LA and I've just never been, I want to work with people because I fuck with what they do and I like them as people and they're genuine. If they happen to be a big artist, then great. But that's not my incentive for the people that I have in my circle. And there is a a very strong group of people that I trust. I've made very good relationships out here. Um, And, you know, it it is nice that there are shows every week um, throughout, honestly, like seven days a week. It's not like other cities where it's just a Thursday through Saturday game. We have shows pretty much Tuesday through Saturday. Okay. Um, if not more so, to be honest, I mean, we got like space out on Tuesdays. There's yep. a, there's a brownies and lemonade tonight. There's another thing on Friday. Like there's shows all the time. Um, and so I'm in a lucky position where like, it's easy to, uh, meet individuals in the industry just by being in proximity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that. And I like being in a city that's exciting and has a lot to do. I'm a very active person. It's funny. I consider myself an extroverted introvert. Meaning I am very okay with being isolated and being in a studio and not leaving my house for a week, but it's not healthy for me. Mm-hmm. So I do go out and once I'm out, I'm very good at, I, I enjoy socializing and I enjoy having a good time being around people a lot. And I consider myself a people person, but then I need like two days to recharge my, 
mental state. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I love LA. It's, it's not for everybody. I have a house here now. My studio is in my house. Like I, I put in a lot of blood, sweat, tears, hours to give myself the life that I have. Um, and I'm very grateful and there is a certain amount of luck associated to that, but it's also just hard work and it's not for everybody. Like some people work better living in a cabin in the middle of the country. Like Denver is a people like it's a little more outdoorsy. I, it's, it's still a huge city for electronic music and it's a major yes. city, but it's a little more, I you think have that I, balance. I feel like it's hard yeah. to like, you definitely can escape in LA. Like I've been in LA long enough to understand at least like the geographical layout where like you can remove yourself for sure. I live like baked into a mountain. My house is built into the side of a mountain and not in like the Hollywood Hills. It's like a, it's like an area that's like a little more off the beaten path and it we're surrounded by like a valley. So like I hear birds in the morning. I don't hear cars. Yeah. Which is Um, lovely. Yeah. And like, and I also grew up in New York city. So I came from a big city to it. Like for me, LA is like, oh my God, beautiful trees. And it's like, not like it's a like, culture shock. You're not like coming yeah. out here from wherever being like, holy fuck, LA. No, I didn't move from Oklahoma to like, it's, it's, it's just, you know, situational. Like mm-hmm. I, I came from taking the subway to high school to moving in a city where I have a car and I'm on like a, a neighborhood street and nature and there's coyotes that like show up at my door at 7 a.m. Like it's a different thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I feel like if I was in L.A., I would probably want to live in Burbank. I would want to live on the other side of L.A. or just a bit removed because that's what I love about Denver. Like I live in our art district. Like we walk everywhere and we have that accessibility to be in the city, even though the city I say like Denver's big enough to have districts, but it's still a small city. Um, and then you have the mountains, which is like the better, the, the the better reason why we kind of moved here before I realized how truly big the music kind of runs our city and runs through our city. And, you know, again, it's, it's there's a lot of similarities. There's shows. Yeah, I would say Wednesday through like Sunday day parties. There's shows all the time. Summer's crazy. Summer, you've got day shows and then you've got night shows and, and there's so much to do. And yeah, there's definitely like circles of people where I will say like coming out here being so like heavily involved as like let's say like a regional growing act in Florida versus being out here it gave me the opportunity to be involved or not be involved and and I like having that kind of choice where it didn't feel like it's like a necessity for me to like be there or show face or see the person yeah. that's coming to the club that you're working at or da 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 to build these relationships. It was kind of more like, oh, like I moved here, but a lot of people don't know I've moved here and I played Red Rocks, but most of the people who discovered me at Red Rocks have no idea I live in Denver. And like, it's, it's a cool. I didn't know you thing. lived in Denver. We're yeah. friends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, so it's like, I like having that because I'm exactly how you are where like, I love being at home and, and I definitely like we own our flat. And like, again, like one day I would love to have a house in the mountains where we have our flat and we Airbnb it. And I can still come here where I'm traveling and we're 15 minutes from the airport and it's nice and easy, but like having that, that ability to where like, I love where I live. And I think it's when you go somewhere and you're like moving to relocate because of like the opportunities there, like, I'm sure you feel a lot different in your home and your living space now 
than when you when you moved here 11 years ago and you were just oh, trying dude. to get by. You know, it's such a like, yeah. it's like verse like waking up in a box, which I've done versus waking up in a space that like you love being in and you're happy to be in. And like I could go days without leaving and just walk my dog and be really, really happy. But then once I'm out, I'm really glad I went out. But the biggest thing with definitely moving here was like, everybody was like, oh, I'm in Denver tonight. I'm in Denver tonight. Kind of like with LA with shows, like whenever you have friends coming. We have an extra bedroom in our house that it's, we joke, it's like the the touring DJ bedroom. Actually, it's lately become Blank's bedroom because oh he's been God. playing so much in LA. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and JP's there all the time and I love him to death. Um, and he lives in Denver. Love, like, he does he live in Denver. Like, and 15 minutes for me. fucking been to Denver. I really need to, my thing was like, uh, I'm not going to go to Denver until I get booked for Red Rocks. Like that's yeah, like yeah. the uh, thing in my head. But like, I have friends there. I should really like go and visit. So but we people. have like, when people are in town, like they hit me up and they're like, yo, can we stay with you? And then they have their own bedroom. They have bathroom. We have like home cooked meals and they like, they have this, like it's, uh, that's you amazing. know, in, in nature. And, and it's like a nice thing. I like doing it. Um, Sometimes it gets a lot. We'll have like people like back to back. Yeah, that's hard. But, that's, but that's I mean, difficult. Most of our friends that stay here, like we all do our own thing. Like we might go out to dinner one night or something and we'll go to the show, but like they're off at sessions or doing a shoot. I'm working. So like everybody's kind of autonomous and, yes. and they can have their own like freedom. But, but yeah, yeah, we definitely have like the, the spare bedroom touring DJ space. Cause Love like that. in LA, similar Denver, you just have people rolling through all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. But, yeah. And I, I have a photo. Uh, when I first moved to LA, my setup was like a, like a 44 MIDI piece of shit keyboard with my laptop. I had an M audio, like little, uh, interface that cost, I don't know, like it was nothing like speakers that I had, like, like little tiny speakers that I had got like on sale from somewhere. And then uh, a second, like, like an old Dell screen that I had gotten off Craigslist for like $30. Yeah. And it just sat on my desk and I had like, that's, and then I compared it to, I I was lucky enough after being in LA for 11, 12 years to buy a house. And then I have a professionally built studio in my house that's treated and I have a custom desk and my sensor are wired and my microphone and like looking like the perspective of those two things was such a crazy moment. And it had Mm -hmm. to act as just a reminder to myself to like, no matter how hard you are in yourself or where you think you're at or where you're going to be and where you would like to be, you really need to look back and see where you've come from and the growth. Because if you had told me when I moved to LA that I would be doing, first of all, if you had told me when I moved to LA 10 years ago that I'd be a fucking DJ now, I would have laughed at you and be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, that's such a crazy thing to begin with. But having the career in film plus that is just like, I need to like knock on wood and like think every day that I'm, I'm truly lucky and like hope, you know, even if we just stayed here, like most people do not get to have the opportunities and do the things that I've done. So. Absolutely. Well, um, so happy we finally got to discuss. I feel like <laughs> I, I literally could talk to you for a very long time. So we'll definitely have to do another one, maybe a year or so down the road. And you have so many endeavors and it's really awesome to see somebody who not only, you know, being a woman, but like you've really just like killed it and you've taken your time and so many things. Thank you. And I hope you do like 
you're able to like take a step back. And even if you're like frustrated in like one lane, like you're so accredited compared to most of the people that we work alongside with every day. Like everybody has like their thing and everyone has like extreme amount of talent that we're surrounded with, which we're so lucky to be around to begin with. But like you are seriously like a very high inspiration to like my personal long-term goals. So I appreciate appreciate (laughs) you coming on today. And when I'm in LA for countdown, we should hang out. Also, I have a room for you. I know. I, I may be texting <laughs> you about your room in like 10 minutes. Um, but you yeah, no, <laughs> I have a whole week planned. So I'll be there like the 27th through the 30th. And then I'll be back here so I can be here on New Year's Eve with Wesley. So I will definitely I have podcast plans and sessions planned. And we're kind of facilitating everything now that we finally have our dates locked in. So I'll definitely text you. And um, yeah, thank you so much. I'm so excited for people to get to learn more about you because I feel like half of the people in like the EDM world, they don't know about your other side. They don't. Probably not. It's really funny. Like not to, I, before we go, like I posted on like my tiny cat page that I like wrote music for Fortnite. Dude. And, and like people were like, what the fuck? <laughs> I didn't even talk about any of this. I saw... Oh, this is what <laughs> sucks because we're already two hours in, but this is what happens with a good conversation. We need to cut it. <laughs> I know, I know. Like, I need to cut it and I need to stop. But, like, Assassin's Creed, like, the shit for Haunted Mansion, like, your voice in, like, <laughs> Superman, Top Gun, American Horror Story, like, insane. Like, insane. And I'm going to put, like, a big bio on you, so hopefully people read it. If not, I'll, like, post it fucking everywhere. But, yeah, shit, just keep killing it. And I'm very excited. And either way... I would definitely would love to check out your studio when, when I'm out in LA. So let's do Yay. it.